This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I don't think about changing the world through design. I think about raising the expectations of what something can be. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Paula Scher is among the most influential graphic designers working today. The first female principal to join Pentagram, the world's largest independently owned design studio, Scher has earned iconic status and is recognized as the master conjurer of the instantly familiar. Even if you've never heard of Cher, you know her work. Picture the logos for Citibank, Tiffany & Company, Microsoft Windows 8, the Museum of Modern Art, or the graphic identity of the public theater for the last 24 years. Simply put, Cher's impact on the way graphic design is practiced today is immeasurable. In our wide-ranging conversation near Pentagram's New York City headquarters, Cher assesses the source material that feeds her creativity and, as she does, uncovers the process behind her work. She is frank, she is charming, and she is witty. I would like to begin with a sense of what my interest is. It really is fundamentally about a way of knowing, a unique kind of way of knowing... That can only come from the process of making. Mm-hmm. When they say things like the book wrote itself, mm-hmm. or I, a novelist who created the characters and said they told me what they wanted to say. I just created the shell of the characters and they told me what it was they wanted to say. Mm-hmm. Right? These moments where it's only in the process of doing it that you actually discover what it is, what you know, not only about the work, but about yourself as well in an interesting way. Does this make sense to you? Totally. And, and how um, does it make sense to you? Well, there's a thing that becomes triggered from making a discovery, where that in making a discovery, I find is some kind of framework for knowledge you already had, um, that the framework is new, and that's the discovery, but mm. that within that framework... You're going to, as a designer anyway, you're going to sort of revisit all the the things you already know about scale and typography and messaging and all of that. But when when the frame changes, when the frame is new, that's that's really a mammoth discovery. That means that you can play the details as you typically would do it based on your previous knowledge. Um, but it's all going to come roaring together because you've made this new frame. And how do you get to the frame? How do you, Paula, get to the frame? I once explained it as a, a form of free fall, free play. You know, that you're, you're sort of, you, you have suspended 
your belief system and your 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 set of tricks and what you think you know and what you don't know you you suspend that and you're in this state that you put yourself in i think partially subconsciously to be able to make a discovery do you equate that with getting in there making playing with ideas see, for me it's usually sketching you know like it i'm starting sketching. i'm starting something and it starts out sort of stiff and contrived from some pre-existing idea i have and then in the, then in the doing in the process i see something and is it in the case of design it often starts with a brief right well it always starts i mean i i once explained this as um sort of two as if your brain is split in half you have you have one side that's a brief that tells you very specific things that you need to accomplish. And then you have this other side that's uh, sort of uh, a, a computer that's filled with everything you ever saw in your life, like every movie you ever saw, every book you ever read, every thought you ever had. And it's as if you're a slot machine and you put your nickel in and you want the cherries to line up, and then the cash comes out. <laughs> you know, that you need to be, that's why I say you need to be in a state of play, where you have already absorbed the the brief information, and it's in there, and you know it, it's boring, it's not inspiring, it's not the thing that makes you have an idea. Right. But you, you can't purely con- concentrate on that information. You sort of have to absorb the information and be in a state where you're making something or or sort of semi-paying attention to allow this sort of subconscious behavior to take place that gives you ideas. Right. To go deeper into this notion of state of play, describe it. Is it, I mean, you, you've talked about it in interesting ways. You just alluded to the fact that sometimes it's, I think you said at one point, it's putting on your lipstick or it's yes, sitting right. in a taxi cab. Also being bored sometimes. I used to, I thought I was more creative when I smoked. Because I would, what smoking was, was um, a break. And it was a break that you would take, you know, after you completed generally an activity. You, you may have been writing a letter and then you, you stop and you have a cigarette. Or um, you finish dinner and you want a cigarette. Those things, or if you're alone and you're doing those things, you're re- it's really mindless. You can get a lot of ideas that way because you're not paying any attention to anything specifically mm-hmm. except mm-hmm. smoking. Mm-hmm. My problem was that I replaced smoking with reading my emails and that actually uses conscious energy. And right. I found that I, I lost a lot of my creative space simply by, by folk, going into that world. Go, going into a different world because right. you're not you're you're uh, smoking and standing around is nothing. Right. I mean, nothing is nothing is going on, so everything is going on. A taxi cab is like that, except for if I'm reading my email, then I then I cut out that sure. that activity. Right. Archimedes discovered displacement in the bathtub, right? <laughs> that that was where the Eureka was. He was oh, in the bathtub, yeah. right? Well, he was playing with his crown. Yeah. Well, there you are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It sounds like maybe you go back and forth between these phases of the kind of state of play or the, the break from or the different context and the actual sketching, playing. I mean, do those two things operate in relationship for you as, you're, really as the idea is developing? It depends upon how much time I have to resolve something like I, just this afternoon i had to enforce some solutions to a problem that wasn't totally solved and um i did it the the sketchbook way you know that because i that that never fails it's just painful 
you know, I, I, where we're you know standing around sort of bored and drooling is wonderful when you have an aha moment, mm-hmm. but you can't you can't count on that in the middle of the day with a deadline. So what in inevitably works for me is just sketching my way into it. And the way I sketch my way into it is that if I'm designing something like a logo um, on a piece of paper where I can't perfect it, it's frustrating because the thing always looks sloppy. So the mindless part is trying to make the thing that I think I'm drawing neat. And while I'm doing this mindless activity, I'm, that's where I make the discovery. If you talk to people on the street or in an airport and you say to them, what does the artist or designer do or how do they work? Typically an answer in popular culture would be the artist holds a great vision and then works to manifest that vision, that that's really the process, but it's already in there, in the genius and in the artist's eye or the designer's eye. Now, well, I may not be a genius, you know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that may be how, the issue. How, <laughs> that's a familiar mm-hmm. story to you, is it not? Yes, but it it aggrandizes the activity. No, exactly. Um, I think that there are people who have proclivities and that some people are are very excellent at organization and some people are very uh fastidious about everything they do and then there are other people who are uh, question things more or are more uncomfortable with preconceived notions and behavior. You know, that human personalities are different. I don't know that, you know, the great genius is the thing. I think that you find the proclivity and you tend to push that as far as you can according to your passion. Right. I, I, I'm in total agreement, though. I'm fascinated by the fact that so many people think that about artists, that so many people think that, you know, that you hold a vision and you work to manifest it, and that's what the process is. Whereas what you're talking about and what I'm trying to explore is that you make it to know it. Well, that's You've got to get there. You've got to build well, it and make it and be in that state of play and engage with material and with your body and that's how it comes through. But you can get people to talk about that, but it isn't a popular notion of how artists and designers work, I don't think. And that's just interesting. Where does that come from? I think that comes from um, uh, docenting at uh, museums. Like if you, ha- if you listen to a docent um, take you through a Van Gogh exhibition or, or any artist that started out doing something one way and then grew to the the thing the body of work that made them ultimately famous it they're all it's always docented like these things are preordained mm-hmm. you know that mm-hmm. that that it's all leading to this moment of this profound discovery that this vision was already there and actually what they're jumping over is the part of the the process that actually got them there. Right, right. And I think the preordained language is right because I think there's association with divinity yeah, sure. and old associations with the muse and inspiration and yeah. in that we carry it mm-hmm. and we tell the story of Odysseus or whatever the muse mm-hmm. is channeling through us, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's always the, that's a good narrative. Is it different for you, this process in your design work and in your map painting, say? Um, I'm... I'm finding the time frame is very different, but I'm finding I I finish the same way. I have this um, unbounding reserve of confidence that the outcome is going to be good. And like I'll be in the middle of the painting and it isn't, 
looking like it's going to happen, but it's. I know it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I know that if I get over a certain period of difficulty within the, the making of it, I'm going to. I'm going to resolve it. I mean, I always believe it. I, I I finish them all. I don't. I never stop. I don't. You're talking about the maps. I'm talking about painting the maps, but the same thing is true with my design work because I have to. I have to. There's a deadline. I've right. got a. I've got a. I've right. got a client waiting for a thing. Right. I've got to feel terrific about going in and presenting it. So, right. so I know that there is going to be this positive outcome, and if there isn't, I got to get another week. <laughs> <laughs> and in your design work, um, when you get to a place where you're ready to ready to present, and assuming there's a positive response to it. What happens then? Does it get fixed for you, or are you constantly in a process of making and evolving it all the time? You can't ever walk away from it because usually when you're making something, for example, in in my design profession, I'm mostly designing things like identities or public spaces. And you have to be involved in every form of execution or it's going to fall apart. So you're 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 really moving from being a maker to um, a producer to a producer. You're designing yeah. a system for production. You know, for example, I was uh, looking only this weekend. I was down in Staten Island looking at this uh, shopping area that we were doing with uh, uh, the architect firm Shop, and I was out there with the signage people, and they had done the sign wrong, and uh, they did that. That there was some conversation that happened that I wasn't privy to where they did something where they were saving money and it was terrible. And then I realized I had to resolve this thing without spending any more money and I realized it was a lighting issue. And I actually pulled out the lighting from the inside of the sign and made this mesh move a certain way and had them front light it. And it was beautiful and I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't been down on the site Mm -hmm. making this other thing Mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that's part of why I participate because this sort of thing happens all the time. Um, and something it was better than what I had, what I proposed. You know, sometimes yeah, that's well, that's right. It, yeah. right. In in doing it, you discover right. that yeah. And maybe your work with the public theater is an interesting example mm-hmm. too of work that keeps on evolving and keeps on changing. Mm-hmm. I mean, not necessarily for reasons because you had the impulse to change it, but people picked it up and mm-hmm. you you reacted to that. The public theater was interesting for me because I think it it made me a better professional in in an interesting way because what I'm always doing is is trying to evolved design but i hadn't i hadn't really thought about the the effect of the way the public perceives something over a period of time and that what i got to do with the public theater which i sort of consider my lab because i've gotten to experiment with it and some things work and some things don't as i started to really understand how people recognize things and what kind of repetition works and what's successful and what i began doing was instead of doing these Designing these individual posters, I would design a season um, at once where these things start to become collectivized in a way, but it's not its not the Swiss modernist way where everything's ordered. It's a way where you recognize a particular conceit of, a, of an initial poster that's done for Shakespeare in the Park that then transcends to a myriad of things mm. that are all recognizable. It's mm. like making its own little manual each year mm-hmm. for this thing that will – And they're all connected in some kind they're of all way connected in, in some, the eye of the observer. That's the reader, right. Yeah. You, you recognize it and that – the methodology of it, I teach to the people that I've positioned to the public theater and who do that 
who do that work, and they they send send me the result of it every day. I'm looking at something they've made that's like a a little flyer or an ad or something that's going out, and I check it out, and it, they they all work. It's amazing, right? But it, it's also my understanding that that peaked, and yet then it kept on going and picked up by people in right. what one would call invitation or plagiarism, depending on one's that, mood. That happened in uh, after bringing the noise, bringing the funk, and it was uh, a, it was bad for the public theater because. If if people imitate a sure. style of a place, then that place loses its identity because it belongs to all the, the other things that have more money where you recognize it everywhere. Then it's no longer their identity. Identity is unique to the place. Right. And your response to that was really to do subtle design mm-hmm. and, and change things, as you say, without people even knowing that you were doing it. I know. I started And still that. following that recognizable... Well, I left Identity. elements that were recognizable and see, and mm-hmm. see how far how far I could push something. I I do this with lots of things. Like you know, you want to know you want to know how people see and at what point things are different but recognizable as the same thing, and that. Um, I'll try that on almost every identity I do because identities now really have to be very dynamic. They have to be able to change for every single use. I mean, it used to be that you would design a logo and put a logo on a letterhead and on a box and that was it and you're done. <laughs> um, but they they work in so many different forms of media and they move and they appear and, re- and disappear and they have subsets and they have families and you you want your public to recognize it as one thing without being bored by it. Um, it's, and it's very interesting. I think that whole story is really fascinating, really, how you had to had to kind of nurture it along, mm-hmm. make it even as it was produced and continue that process. It, it kind of provides us with a unique situation in these kinds of questions that we're asking. You know? Well, I think that I was very fortunate to really work on one thing for 23 yeah, years exactly. because you don't have that, you don't have that opportunity. And most of my clients are, you know, six months, a year. I have I have ongoing relationships with certain corporations and um, uh, not-for-profit groups, but each new project that comes in has a finite period of time where I'm invested in a certain way, and that goes away. And to be able to be continually invested for that period of time was really – it's different. You, you start – it starts to change you. Right. To switch gears for a minute, part of what you have found to be creative and and stimulating and has been to be in new contexts or to be in a place mm-hmm. where I think you use the word unqualified, which I <laughs> yeah. don't know if that's right. But, well, it's, but, it's but dramatic. It's, but it, yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's it's new and it it presents challenges and doesn't allow you to fall on back on things that you've already done before. To grow. You have to put yourself in dangerous situations. Mm-hmm. You have to put yourself in, in situations where you, you to a degree, really don't know what you're doing. If you know exactly what you're doing, then it's not going to be new because the reason you know what you're doing is you've already done it. Right. <laughs> um, and so, so you're not making in the way we're talking about right. today. Right. Right. So, so you you put yourself in this position of sort of a free fall where you're making educated guess guesses, and you're you're asking questions, um, not being assured of the answer, and and that that you you through a series of trial and error and really accident find a solution that you would which may be actually a breakthrough in an area simply because nobody bothered to do it. Right. Right. Um, 
And that's very exciting. And it's these accidents that interest me so much. Yeah, they're the be- that's the best. That's the best. You know, you can bring it all to it, but it's only in the making, in the improvisation, in the trying, in the experimentation. That's it, the accident, and that's the discovery. And then you know what it needs to be, but you can't get there from that Right, you can't get there without... Divine vision, right? Abs- yeah. No, yeah. that would be crazy. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't... If you know how everything's supposed to be, how can you invent anything? Right. Well, this is what amazes me about this, this very popular conventional assumption about how creative people work. I think I think it's true. I think it's out there. Well, my mother thought that. And she told me not to move to New York and be a designer. She said, oh, you can't do that. That takes talent. It was sort of the divine vision. One of these new projects, and I think was a real turning point for you, was the performing arts school in, in New mm, Jersey. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you did that first time you did right. those kinds of environmental graphics. So can you tell that story? Yeah, that was that was uh, amazing and and was I would say not accidental but naive. Um and that in that I thought I could do this thing, but I was right. <laughs> um there was a there was a building and the building had um complicated form. It was a rectory building. It looked sort of like a castle. And it was a very ugly building in Newark, New Jersey, behind a school. And they had no budget, really, um, for any kind of major architectural intervention. And they hired me because um, they saw the work I'd done for the public. And it was inside the building, and there were a lot of bright colored banners hung up. And they made the assumption that that was, I was somebody who knew how to do this sort of architectural intervention. I really hadn't. I didn't know how to read a, an architect's you, plan. Had you done those environmental graphics at the public by this time, too? No. That, that the, the ones, the, there, there were complicated ones I did I did in 2010. When 1994, when uh, George Wolfe uh, hired me to design the, the public theater identity, um, there was an architect who I became actually a very good friend of. He was um, the building architect. It, it was a, a man named James Stewart Polshek. Anyway, he saw the he saw the banners and he said, "Hey, these these would be really great. Let's let's paint the place white and we'll take the graphics and we'll we'll affix them to the building." And they and he sort of showed me where they'd go and told me to design them to fit into the spaces. And he gave me uh, the size and the scale of the spaces. And I made the most important design discovery of my mid-career is that I I took a photograph of the building and we made a Photoshop rendering of it and I positioned typography all over the building in the nooks and crannies of the way this thing was constructed. And it was was outrageous behavior. And actually, it wasn't new. Where I got the idea from was um, these old uh, paintings of walls in London in – on uh, what's the name of the London Theatre District in the West End. And there were, you know, there'd be something like Drury Lane and there would be these incredible buildings where there were ads for, for plays painted on the side of the building. And I, I, I looked at that as a real form. The difference was that this building had lots of ins and outs and surfaces so the typography could really dance and play around the building. And it was extreme when I did it. Now everybody does it. It's not that unusual. And they do it out of better materials and they do it better than I did it. But at the moment, it was a breakthrough right, simply totally, yeah. simply because I didn't really know that I was doing something outrageous. Right. But going back to your the, the divided self you were talking about before, you had in your uh, data bank from the West End in London – 
Yes. Some of that experience and some of those ideas, which had triggered something, and it was the combining of those of that plus this uh, this opportunity to do this with the school. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That's, right. that's, that, that's, that allowed right. you to do it, and then the you two. so you played with those two sure. things, and then Photoshop, interestingly, allowed you to test it. Well, you can see it. Right, but Photoshop was, a, in one sense, the making vehicle for it. Whereas, in one case, you were talking about earlier that you sketched through to get to your idea, mm -hmm. to know your idea. Right. And here you Photoshopped through to get to your idea, and it was that digital process. Not totally true. No. Ah. What I did, actually, is that... Um, I think that I think that building happened in 2000. We ultimately did the Photoshop rendering, but I, we had the photograph of the building, and I took a piece of tracing paper over the surfaces and started drawing where the typography could go because that's how I directed it because I don't do Photoshop. Even better. But it was it was complete brazenness because I really didn't know anybody who was doing. My partners weren't doing that. Nobody was, nobody was designing like that. By the way, what allowed you to be so brazen? Where did you get that courage? I don't know. I mean, I don't really feel like I have all that much to lose. What can happen? What terrible... I mean, it's, the building's not going to fall down from being painted. But are you at a point in your career where that brazenness can happen? To, or was it always there? I mean, when you did the record albums, I, there, there was some brazen acts yeah, in there, I was. Too, right? uh, I, I always had a lot of uh, cheek. I don't know why. I mean, I, I think I was, you know, I was a rebellious kid. I fought a lot with my parents. I didn't like suburbia. I left home, went to art school. I mean, that, some of that was in my mm -hmm. my natural makeup. And, and um, I think when I was younger, I, I used it to cover up how really insecure I was. In the early 1990s, Paula began painting colorful typographic maps of the world. These large canvas paintings of continents, countries, islands, oceans, streets, and neighborhoods are deliberately not the precise work of the cartographer. They are more like a map fantasia, work fundamentally rooted in Paula's humor, her sense of satire, and her bold imagination. To see this work, look at the Pentagram site online or get hold of the book entitled Paula Share Maps, featuring 39 of her paintings. Our conversation about the paintings flowed naturally into a discussion of her famously ambivalent relationship with the ubiquitous typeface Helvetica. The font, so widely used, became the subject of a 2007 documentary. In that film, Paula stated that Helvetica was the typeface of the Vietnam War, to her, it was the visual language of the very corporation sponsoring the war, and she therefore took a moral stance against its use. This form, this kind of precise and detailed form of these maps, I'm interested, you know, for the sake of this of, of our conversation, how you got there. Your dad was a cartographer. Yeah, my right? father was a cartographer. He yeah. was. He was. Uh, was it an homage to him somehow, no, or a really rebellion either. against him somehow? I mean, I've I've been making charts and graphs and fractured information for a very long time. Um, I did it much more as a writer. My husband had a magazine called the Pushpin Graphic, and I used to write for it. And um, I made fractured charts first there. And then I started, um, you know, making funny graphs of things that were nonsensical. They were sort of data-like. You know, like I, I, there was a a parody of a 
for a graphic design magazine called Print, and um, I made a, a, a genealogy chart of the complete genealogy of graphic design, and it was famous people ma- you know, marrying typefaces, and it went through history based on the sound of the faces, mm-hmm. and the whole thing made Milton Glaser, you know, but it was designers mm-hmm. having intercourse. It was, it was ridiculous, but, but, you know, it was very complex, and you could actually read the thing, and there was some linear thought to it, and it was a joke, and I did a lot of things like that. Then for an AIGA cover, I painted the United States on the back of the cover by hand, and I accidentally left out the state of Utah and I drew it back in but I love the way the painting looked it was I had painted on chipboard with um, designer gouache and had this really very kind of spectacular glow after that I made little little paintings of political maps and they were they were completely opinionated but the idea of painting maps and doing it in the peculiar way that you do it well, it was they were jokes, you know. Like they were, it was satire. I used to write satire. You were playing. Yeah, absolutely. You were playing, right? So there wasn't some sort of maps are interesting, or I have no. They're maps really. Or... I'm, I'm sick of maps. You know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> the same kind of maybe a relationship with Helvetica you have with letters. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tend, saying... to, tend to insert my own politics into in, inanimate objects. Yeah, but there's there's in both cases. I mean, I'm, I I do get a kick out of your relationship with Helvetica <laughs> because it seems to have pressed you to really interesting things. You know, the Helvetica thing is very amusing, but it's it's actually there's actually a huge amount of truth to how I felt, and I wasn't alone in that. In that, at the particular point of time in the late 1960s and early 70s, if you're entering your design career, what you were seeing from corporate design was this massive amount of um, European modernism that was really the Swiss international style and it was Helvetica on a grid and it was very clean and the goal of it was to be clean and I was coming out of a ca- culture that was composed of record covers, underground comics, zigzag rolling papers, um, San Francisco uh, psychedelia and that stuff was the language of corporations that were responsible for the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. You know, So if you're politicized and you're you're in a certain socioeconomic milieu. You interpret things to mean those things. That is the 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 subtext. The way I think that people looked at Hillary Clinton's logo uh, that my partner Michael Beirut designed as corporate because they perceived her as corporate. So there was this brush that happens that has nothing to do with the intent or the meaning of the position. And this is another – this is a, a side effect. So in rebelling against Helvetica, which was my way of rebelling against the Vietnam War as a designer, I don't want to make anybody look like that. I just completely decided to do things that were not that. And in doing those things, I you know, I made the discoveries I made. But, but while the logic is silly – you know that that the it's nonetheless a spur to uh, discovery and creativity. Absolutely, and to, yeah. but it, but it's also there. Also, is that uh, you know as as you you're you're struck with how people perceive um, uh, people who are terrific artists as coming from this great genius where they already know there are people who are who who codify. Um, design in a very specific way because they say it all the time and make assumptions about what it means, which it doesn't mean anymore. Right. right. I don't know where this question is, um, but I, I was so struck by your citation of the of the three Beatles albums. 
This is a digression mm-hmm. of Revolver, Sergeant mm-hmm. Peppers, mm-hmm. and the White Album. Can yeah, talk, just talk about that for a minute? Just because well, I think it's—I mean, that's in your blood, right? Yeah. That, well, that, the thing is that you come into the the current culture at the time you come into it. You don't come into it with the knowledge of all the other things that came before it because you didn't experience it. You might have seen it in a book, but you didn't have any relationship to it, and. I remember the first time I saw the Revolver cover, and I was, you know, I was in high school, and I remember staring at this thing with, you know, this drawing of this hair. I didn't know who Aubrey Beardsley was yet. I didn't know where this came course, from. Yeah. Um, I, I liked the Beatles. They were the four heads that were done in this kind of uh, photostatted, monochromatic black and white cover. But these things, when you when you saw them. It, they mattered to me at the moment I saw them in that time in relationship to what they represented with the music and the fact that I hadn't seen anything like it before. And that that's when I was gobstruck by something that was designed. And that, that then, there, then there was Sgt. Pepper only a year later. Right. And 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 it was even more intense, and it 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 brought all kinds of crazy cultural references into that imagery and all things I cared about, and it it was like it was designed just for me, and it was funny, yeah, and it was all yeah. of that. And then there was this audacity of the one that followed that, this absolute audacity of like not putting anything on your album cover. <laughs> it was sort of like the giant screw you. <laughs> it was indeed. It was fantastic. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and they were the only ones who could do that. Yeah. And that, that the, for me, the lessons in, in the three covers were, were astounding. Yeah. I, I just found it so striking and, frankly, so uh, charming that y- you you took those three album covers and, and you sort of carry them with you as your – as these – you know, as something that went really deep for you, right? And that and these principles that you're trying to articulate here are, have guided you for years now. Really, you know? Well, it isn't so much, I, I think – aesthetically what goes on in those covers i think it's more the way i felt when i saw them right. which is like the thing you want somebody else to feel one of the questions i wanted to ask to go to a kind of different place here is at art center half of our mission statement is influence change and um it's very interesting to hear the ways in which our graduates the artists and designers who come from art center think about change and i wondered if you you might talk about that a little bit about how you understand the change you make in the world i don't think about changing the world through design i think about raising the expectations of what something can be like i, I mean one of the things i i think i enjoyed designing so much was a parking garage because there's no expectation that a parking garage is going to be an interesting environment mm-hmm. That to do that is easy in a way because all of a sudden you do something terrific and you've now set the standard for what that can be and there's no going back. If you go back, you've been, you become lazy and that, that's, that to me is progress, that you find, you find the thing that you can affect with some form of intelligence and you make that better and, and that you can do it in all different types of ways. I mean better is relative but it could mean – taking something that's badly designed and making it well-designed. It could be uh, creating humor or delight in a situation that's not generally humorous or delightful. Um, It could be uh, being incredibly sensitive to 
an audience that has uh, gone through a disaster and made, you know, competent and good signs and building back a neighborhood. I mean, there are all different ways to do this thing. Um, and some of them are really little and some of them are really big. But I think that that you can't – I don't think I'm ever cynical about a project. I mean, I think when I take on a project, the goal is that I'm not going to solve a problem. I'm going to look for a way to raise an expectation with my client, with the public, with the thing itself, with me. You know, like what what can that thing be that mm-hmm. is going to be surprising or better? Mm-hmm. That's the goal. And that's change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is absolutely change. Do you have a way of measuring it um, for you personally? There are things that I – I know I know that the work had effect. Like I know the public theater had an effect, um, not just because it was copied, but I know that within theater it has it has its effect. That um, not for profit theaters understand that, and they they desire not that necessarily design, but that that method of of engagement with graphics in, in relationship to their to their theaters and in a way that enriches their program and the public's understanding of it. I mean, I think that that's a real, there's a real impact in that. The work on the High Line and the Rockaway, Rockaway beaches were significant, you know, that they changed neighborhoods. The High Line is a, is a showpiece and, uh, you know, it's a tourist attraction. It's not really the people of the neighborhood who are going there as people traveling there to be in that neighborhood. Right. But the Rockaways is a real neighborhood project, and it was built back after Hurricane Sandy. And it, it, uh, when I meet people from the Rockaways, they thank me. It's very nice. It feels great. So, I, you know, I, I, I like when I feel that that's happened. Right. Particularly, obviously, particularly meaningful when real people respond to it really directly to you, right? I, I love um, it when people tell me they have my record covers. You know, like I'll, somebody will send me an email about talk to me about something that I did 46 years ago. That's right. fantastic. Right, right. Well, people are still talking about Boston. <laughs> <laughs> Damn them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Paula. Well, thank you so much for this. Thanks for, for your time and your thoughtfulness and, Happy and to, for being here. Happy yeah, to take off my headphones. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.